We are in the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 32 today. Again, it's a long passage, so we'll sort of go through it uh, as we go. But I encourage you to open your Bibles to Genesis 32, or you can read along uh, in the outline. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You as always for giving us Your Word and for making us Your people. We thank You for this church. Lord, this morning as we come to Your Word, we pray that You would give us uh, the right Word for hearts that are often filled with fear, for faith that is often weak, and for prayers that are often filled with doubts. We need to be strengthened as believers, and so we ask uh, that Your Spirit, using Your Word, would do just that in each one of us. For this, we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Has someone you cared about ever been angry with you? I mean, really angry with you. I mean, a wife uh, might say, purely hypothetical, you understand, My dear, sweet, unthinking, uncaring, insensitive, blunderheaded husband, for the third year in a row, you've forgotten our anniversary. Do you have any idea how I feel right now? And somehow you figured out that she's unhappy. So you try to appease her. You know, dear, I was just thinking, we should celebrate by buying you a new car, which is a great idea, except... You promised to buy her a new car last year. And so your suggestion meets with limited enthusiasm. The wife's response goes something like this. Ah! So you try another tactic. Hannah, I just want you to know how beautiful you are to me. And when you smile, I forget everything. I don't even notice that gap between your teeth. Again, limited success. And the wife's response? Ah! So what do you do? Well, you should probably admit that you've done wrong, and sometimes that isn't so easy to do. Our pride gets in the way, and when pride gets in the way, our wife's response is? Ah! And at that point, any effort towards reconciliation is just really hard. Today we're going to learn about that. We're going to learn from a man who discovered the hard way that it takes more than presents and gifts and flowers and speeches to win over those that we've made angry. We're looking at Jacob again, this time as he tries to appease his brother's anger. You know, there's some evidence, however small and insignificant, that men become angry more often than women do. Some studies show, it was small and insignificant, but some studies show the average man loses his temper about six times a week, while women seem to blow their tops only about three times a week. I have no idea where those numbers come from, but since I read it on the internet, it must be true. What's even more interesting is that men and women tend to get mad at different things. Men often tend to get angry at things, like a flat tire or a dull razor when things don't go the way we want them to go. On the other hand, women are more often uh, getting angry with people, like 
the men who sometimes disappoint them. Well, today we're talking about appeasing anger and the fear of other people. And sometimes when we try to appease the anger of other people, we do it in such a way that it just makes them angrier. And we're going to see a classic example today of how not to appease the anger of another person and how fear drives us to try that in all the wrong ways. So let's go to Genesis 32, our text for this morning, and we're continuing our study in the life of Jacob today. Now, Jacob is a man who has struggled with selfishness all his life. And sometimes the struggle with selfishness is really a struggle for survival. And when it is, when we're faced with a choice, we can act selfishly and perish, or we can abandon selfishness and survive. So the question here in Genesis 32 is, what will Jacob do? And I suppose more importantly, the question really is, what will you do? If you remember, Jacob was a twin. He's born hanging on to his older brother's heel, Esau's heel. And his name, by the way, Jacob, means supplanter, one who hangs on to the heel. And this guy's looking for a free ride most of his life. And so many things Jacob did just demonstrated selfishness. He stole the birthright from his brother. He deceived his father into believing that he was his brother and got the blessing from Isaac. And then because of the wrath of Esau, Jacob had to get out of town and had to get out fast. And so you know what happened. Rachel, his duplicitous mother, said, Jacob, I love you more than I love Esau. In fact, I probably love you more than I love your father. And I want to preserve your life, so you need to leave town. Go back to Paddan Aram, where I came from, and stay with my family for a while. Well, now he's been gone about 20 years. And he's on his way home. And Genesis 32 is the story of Jacob trying to find his way home. But you know what? On the way home, he encounters his brother Esau. The last person he wants to see is the first person he sees. So let's find out what he does. The first thing we see is that Jacob has a plan forced by fear. A plan forced by fear. Starting at verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them. Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Now remember the context. Moses is writing this, and he's writing it to the people who escaped from Egypt and are wandering around in the desert for years. And they're doing that because years before, spies had brought back a report 
of giants who lived in Canaan, which God had promised to them. But because of their unbelief and disobedience, a generation dies in the wilderness. But the rumors of those giants hadn't died. In fact, they'd grown bigger with the years. And now God's people are on the verge of going back into that land and facing those giants. They had to know how to deal with their fears. And the story of Jacob's fear in meeting Esau teaches them and teaches us that when fear grips you, you need to rely on God's provision, not on your own plans. You need to rely on God's provision, not on your own plans. So here Jacob gets uh, essentially the scare of his life. Twenty years before, he fled for his life after stealing his brother's birthright and blessing. And now in obedience to God, he's returning to Canaan, and God had just preserved his family and his possessions from the angry Laban. But every step he takes in the direction of Canaan seems to thunder in Jacob's ears, Esau, Esau, Esau. He has to face Esau. And Jacob knew that he'd have to face this brother who had planned on killing him. So Jacob sent messengers with this carefully worded message to let Esau know that he's not coming back to try to dominate him. He's coming as Esau's servant. He's seeking his favor, starting in verses 4 and 5. Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob. I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. So he's nervously waiting for his messengers to return. He must have thought, surely Esau will be friendly by now. After all, it's been 20 years. And since God commanded me to return, I'm sure he's calmed Esau's anger. So the messengers return, verse 6. And they say, we came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Jacob is gripped with fear. And truth be told, fear grips all of us at times. I mean, let's face it, there's a lot of things in our world to be afraid of. To some extent, we all fear death, either our own or the death of loved ones. We fear the unknown future. We fear for our children and their safety. Or at least you do. I gave up on that a while ago. So, you know, we actually have like our own wing at the emergency room, you know, our own room there. We may fear being victimized by crime or being in an accident caused by a drunk driver. And just when we sort of got over the fear of nuclear war, now they're telling us that our planet will probably get hit by a giant asteroid. The first mention of fear in the Bible is uh, right after Adam and Eve sinned. God came looking uh, for them in the garden. They hid themselves because they're afraid. Because sin results in guilt, and guilt causes fear towards God and toward the one that we've wronged. And we fear the retaliation that we know we deserve. And that's the root cause of Jacob's fear. Even though 20 years had passed, 
Jacob's fear had stalked him whenever he thought of facing Esau. And now especially when he hears that Esau is riding toward him with 400 men. I imagine he flashes back to that day when he tricked Esau and his father out of Esau's blessing. And he could hear Esau's anguished cry as he discovered what happened. (coughs) I'm sure he could remember the murderous looks that Esau gave him right before he fled. And it all comes flooding back when he hears that Esau's coming. And we'd like to think, if we just leave our sin and guilt alone, that over time it'll just fade away. But before we can enjoy the peace and promises of God, we have to be reconciled to our brother. We've got to confess our sin to God and seek the forgiveness of those we've wronged. Um, But what do we usually do when fear grips us? We usually do what Jacob did. When fear grips us, our tendency is to rely on our own plans. To rely on our own plans. Jacob, the schemer, is making progress. Here he not only plans, but he also prays. It's the first reference to Jacob praying. And it's a good prayer, as we'll see. But his faith is mixed with fear, and his plans are more tied to his fear than to his faith. And one reason I argue that is Jacob prayed for God's protection but he failed to pray for God's direction. He prays for God's protection, but he fails to pray for God's direction. Simply put, his plans are not in response to waiting on God. In fact, his plan of dividing his people into two camps utterly ignores God's provision of the camp of angels he sent to protect him. In verse 1, Jacob encounters God's angels as he comes back to the borders of Canaan. And it's not just one or two angels. The the Hebrew makes clear it's a whole bunch of angels. It's a regiment of angels. First of all, notice, just as Jacob departed the promised land with a vision of angels in Genesis 28, now he's re-entering the promised land. (coughs) And he's accompanied by a host of angels. Now, back in Genesis 28 at Bethel, Jacob had seen the angels ascending and descending on that staircase, that ladder into heaven. And now God gives him a vision of angels on his return. What is God doing here? Why is he doing that? I think God is reminding Jacob he hasn't forgotten his promises to him. He's recalling the scene at Bethel and of all the things that God had promised to him there. That's the first thing that we see as we look at this story of an angelic visitation. But I want you to know, Jacob sees this heavenly host, this heavenly army of angels, and he says, Lord, this is a double camp. Here's my camp, and here's your camp, filled with this heavenly host. There are two camps, which means I'm being accompanied by a band of angels. This very sight, this very vision is designed in part to make Jacob more aware of the heavenly realities which are meant to reassure him. But the purpose of the vision isn't just to draw attention to itself. The whole vision is designed to do what? To make Jacob remember God's promise. God made him a promise the last time he'd seen angels. And God is calling on Jacob to remember that promise. God never forgets his his promises, 
but in his fear, Jacob just might. So the Lord visits him to remind him of his promise uh, that he'd already been given. And it should have shown Jacob that God's guarding him. Jacob named the place two camps, referring to his little camp and God's camp of angels. But then Jacob hears, gets the news of Esau and his men marching toward him, and he panics, and he divides his own group into two camps, thinking that if Esau attacks one camp, the other will be able to escape. But he's forgetting about God's camp of angels and substituting his own two camps for God's two camps. With God's two camps, the angels and Jacob, he's safe. But his two-camp plan has a major flaw. It leaves God out. The expected results of Jacob's plan show us it's not of the Lord. When Jacob had God's two camps, he's safe. No one could get past an army of angels to touch Jacob, his family, or his possessions. But when he trades God's two camps for his two camps, the best he can hope for is that one camp will be wiped out while the other might escape or might not. And that's a problem when we start planning without waiting on God. Our best plans, as clever as they might be, always fall short of God's provision. Another clue that Jacob's plans are not of the Lord is this uh, groveling flattery he uses to try to appease Esau. He's going way beyond custom, way beyond common courtesy, over and over, my Lord Esau, your servant Jacob. We actually see that in verses 4, 5, 18, and 20. I think it's more than ironic that the man who schemed for so long to gain superiority over his brother <coughs> is now babbling, my Lord Esau, your servant Jacob, as he has to meet him face to face. All his schemes for grabbing the power and the privilege over Esau are gone. They've backfired. Now, hear me carefully. It's not wrong to plan. It's wrong to plan without relying on God. It's not wrong to plan. It's wrong to plan without relying on God. And for a moment, we think that Jacob gets it because we get a glimpse of how Jacob is starting to change. And that comes in verses 9 through 12 when we read this prayer that's founded on faith. A prayer founded on faith. Starting at verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love, and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And so here in verses 9 through 12, we see this glorious prayer. Jacob hasn't had many of his prayers recorded. Apparently, he wasn't the same kind of praying man that Abraham was, or the same kind of servant that Abraham was. But here, Jacob provides us with a model prayer. I want you to see five things very quickly that he prays in this passage, because biblical 
believing prayer pleads God's person and God's promises. And Jacob gives us a good example of that. First, he bases his prayer on God's name. Look at verse 9. He addresses God in three ways. He calls him the God of Abraham, reminding him of the promises God had given to Abraham that were now his. Then he calls him the God of his father Isaac. And you remember Isaac never worshipped idols, so he's identifying the true God, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. And then he goes on to call him the Lord who told me to go back to my land. Lord, you're the God who got me into this mess in the first place. You're the one who told me to go back to the land where Esau was. This is the God to whom I am praying. And so he lists these names of God in order to remind himself about God. And I think that's what we ought to do in our prayers, focusing in on the person and the character of God. Each one of the names of God is designed to give us a particular comfort or answer. And so Jacob draws comfort simply from contemplating his God. Second, he bases his prayer on God's promise. At the end of verse 9, he pleads the command of God, even as he names the name of the Lord. Look at that again. Lord, you're the one who told me to return to your country and your relatives, and I will prosper you. And what he's doing is pleading the promise that God made to him when he told him to go back to his country. It's implied that God will be with him, that God will prosper him, that God will protect him. And so by recounting this, even as he calls on the name of the Lord, he's pleading the promise of God. Thirty bases his prayer on God's grace. Look at verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. And he acknowledges his own unworthiness. He admits he's unworthy of the loving kindness of God. He's unworthy of the mercies of God. He's unworthy of the faithfulness of God. All his prosperity, he's saying, is due to the sovereign grace of God. I haven't merited any of this. I haven't earned any of this. What an incredible change in Jacob's attitude. The man who used to have to take things that God had promised him out of fear that God wouldn't be able to follow through on his promises. Now he recognizes that what he's been given is not due to what he's done, but due to what God's done. And all his prosperity is of grace and not of his own merit. Fourth, he makes this prayer honestly. Verse 11, very specific. Deliver me from the hand of my brother, for I fear him. He's crying out for deliverance from, from Esau. But do you see there's a God-centeredness to this prayer? Even when he has the fear, the anxiety of Esau pressing in on him, he's dwelling on the sovereignty and goodness of God. Could that be a secret for reassurance in our own times of trouble? God's name, God's promise, God's grace, and then he makes the petition. He asks him to deliver him from Esau. I want you to know here that Jacob's self-sufficiency has been replaced with a sense of his own vulnerability. If you look at the end of verse 11, he says, after asking God to deliver me, he says, Esau will come and attack me and the mothers with their children. The phrase literally could be translated, he's coming to attack me and he's going to wipe us out, including the mothers and their children. The idea is that Esau could come and just destroy everything and everybody. So Jacob has this tremendous vulnerability. He's no longer self-sufficient. He recognizes he's totally dependent on God. And finally, he bases his prayer on God's covenant. 
Verse 12, he bases the whole of his prayer on the covenant promise of God that's given to him. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. You know, it's interesting that Jacob borrows both from Genesis 28 and Genesis 22. Now, Genesis 28 is the passage uh, of Bethel, where God came to Jacob and specifically made him the covenant promise that had originally been given to Abraham. And in Genesis 28, he says, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, and to the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He speaks them, and now Jacob quotes from that passage. So God's word has worked on Jacob because Jacob is remembering the promises that God had made to him. But he also quotes from Genesis 22, where God said, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And those words were not spoken to Jacob. Those words were spoken to Abraham, his grandfather. So what Jacob is telling you, he now realizes the promises of God to Abraham are promises of God to him as well. Not only what God said to him at Bethel, but all the promises of God to Abraham are his. I think this prayer is a model prayer. It rests on the foundation of God's covenant, God's command, God's promise, shows a true spirit of worship, the wonder at the mercy of God. Our prayer should be modeled on this kind of frame. They ought to be chock full of biblical words and biblical thoughts and biblical promises, biblical ascriptions of God's glory, biblical praise and adoration to God, biblical descriptions of the character of God. And Jacob gives us, I think, a good example of what Bible-believing prayer looks like. Notice it's not long. It's a short prayer. So everything's good, right? Jacob finally has it together and goes to God and trusts God and depends on God and sets aside all of his earthly plans. Not exactly. Because rather than abandoning his plans, Jacob moves on to plan B, which is to send presents to buy peace. Sending presents to buy peace. Starting at verse 13. Says, so he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. Here's the present 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. That's the groups of animals. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third, 
and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. This is so disappointing. I really wanted the prayer to come at the end and not in the middle. You know, you just kind of want Jacob to get it right once. But here we see God grows Jacob's faith by exploiting his area of greatest weakness. Think about that for a minute. God is going to grow Jacob's faith by exploiting the area of his greatest weakness. God has committed himself to God in prayer, but now he makes plans to appease Esau by a series of extravagant gifts. It's important to recognize that Jacob isn't sending people ahead of him thinking they'll get wiped out and he'll be spared. In fact, Jacob probably thinks it's the other way around. By sending the others ahead, he hopes to spare his people and, if necessary, to face Esau's wrath alone. And as Esau comes up on each drove of animals, he asks, is Jacob there? And they all have to say, what? No, Jacob's still back there behind us. And by sending these animals, Jacob hopes to appease Esau. And as Esau receives extravagant gift after gift after gift after gift, Jacob is hoping against hope, but by the time he finally gets to him, Esau's heart is going to be softened. The Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner makes an interesting comment about this. He says, the pagan approaches his deity just like Jacob approached Esau. Think about that for a minute. The pagan thinks he needs to appease God in order to get God to bless him. That's not how Jacob relates to his God, but it is how he relates to Esau. He fears him. He thinks he's against him. He thinks he needs to do something to win him over to his side. It's exactly how an unbeliever approaches God. The unbeliever knows in his heart of hearts that God ought to condemn him. Instead of begging God for mercy, he tries uh, unsuccessfully to appease God by doing certain things, to try to win him over to our side, not realizing that God has already provided the only way, the one way that we can experience his blessing, and that's through faith in Christ alone. So why does Jacob grovel like this before Esau? Why does he call Esau his Lord and call himself Esau's servant? Because he knew that he had done Esau wrong. For 20 years, Jacob's had the opportunity to meditate on the fact that he defrauded his brother. One Bible scholar, Larry Richards, says this, the remembrance of the wrong that he had done Esau 20 years before, as well as of Esau's hatred, combined to produce guilt and terror in Jacob. Jacob's fear of Esau is rooted in something that Jacob's responsible for and Jacob can't fix. He can't correct. It didn't matter how many presents he gave Esau. There's no guarantee Esau's heart would be softened. His fear of Esau is rooted in something he's responsible for and he can't fix And Jacob has to trust in God alone to get him out of this mess. And God had reached out 
and touch that part of his heart where Jacob was most vulnerable, that guilty conscience for sinful dealings with his brother 20 years ago. And right in that area, God chooses to grow his faith. It's the area of his greatest weakness. And God's going to use it to strengthen his faith. Perhaps God has dealt with you in that way. He's reached out and he's hit you right where you're weakest. And you say, Lord, what are you doing? And the Lord in his word says, I'm going to strengthen your faith because it's in the area where you realize your need and your vulnerability the most. And I'm going to be able to teach you not to trust in yourself, but to trust wholly and solely in me. So while Jacob has grown his faith, as his prayer reveals, he's still up to his old tricks, trying to scheme his way out of a tight spot. Again, it's not wrong to pray and then plan. There is a proper sense in which prayer without action isn't enough. God expects us to plan and then take action. The problem comes when we don't seek the Lord concerning those plans and when we rely on our own plans rather than on God. So even though Jacob has this great prayer, he still fails to trust God and thinks he's going to get out of this mess by sending extravagant gifts ahead of him as a peace offering. So let me ask you a question. Which Jacob describes you? Great angel, he's got all these angels, great faith. Then he gives up on that, divides the camps. Then he has this great prayer, and then he decides to buy his way out. Faith, fear, faith, fear, back and forth, that's Jacob. Are we the Jacob who prays bold prayers based on the character of God? Are we reminding God of his promises and asking him to keep those promises in our lives and in the lives of our children? I'm not accusing here, but perhaps I'm challenging us to think about that. I mean, Jacob's not that different than we are. He's not that different than us. He prays to God, but then fails to trust him. He makes this crazy attempt to appease Esau by sending him hundreds of animals. My guess is if Esau's got 400 men riding with him, he probably already has hundreds of animals. As we'll see in a few weeks, he doesn't even want the animals. Jacob's a lot like us. That's how we do business with God. We pray to him, and sometimes we have prayers that are as good as Jacob's. But then we try to appease God. We're not sure we can trust him. So we're going to try to win him over to our side with our actions. We'll give money. We'll go to church. We'll do good works. We'll come to the Lord's table. We'll play the music. We sing the music. We even run sound so the other people can play and sing the music. And we'll teach Sunday school and children's church and work in the nursery and even come in early to set things up. And all of those are good things. And all of those are needed things. But the question is, why are we doing them? Is it because we're overwhelmed by God's grace and are just trying to show gratitude? Or is it our vain attempt to score points with God and appease him? Little realizing that God teaches us uh, precisely the opposite strategy. God gives his blessings to us on the basis of his own grace, given to those who know they have nothing with which to commend themselves to the Lord. We can't appease God with our works because Jesus 
already has with his works. Hebrews 10.10 tells us, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And Ephesians 5.2 exhorts us to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You can't supply a peace offering to God because God's already provided one in Christ. Uniting us to him, uniting us to each other, breaking down all the walls between Jew and Gentile and whatever other divisions we have. Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. That's the real truth of the matter. Jesus is the offering given to God on our behalf. So let me ask you again, which Jacob are you? Are you made worthy by your work, by your gifts, all the great stuff you can do for God? Are you trying to appease God with your gifts? Are you unworthy before God, justly deserve pleasure and without hope save in his sovereign mercy? Do you wrestle with sin and shame? But that's okay because you vowed to try harder. Or do you confess your sin and accept the peace offering that is Christ that will cover your sin and shame and guilt? Jacob desperately wanted to appease the wrath of Esau. And we desperately need to appease the wrath of God. How are you going to do that? Will you appease the wrath of God with your own self-righteousness? Or will the wrath of God be appeased by the righteousness of Christ? Because you will appear before him in righteousness, either in self-righteousness or clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say about that in Philippians. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. We're about to come to the Lord's table. As you come, think about your sin and shame, and then think about Christ and the cross. Think about how righteous you really are. And then think about how righteous Christ really is. And as you come forward, choose wisely. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Oh, Lord, we are so much like Jacob. We can be so double-minded, full of faith and prayer one moment, then scheming and plotting the next. We're unworthy people, trying and failing to earn your love and appease your wrath, and trying and failing again and again and again. Lord, take our eyes off of ourselves and bring us to Christ that we might see him 
and his righteousness. Thank you that we're not beyond your grace. Thank you that the blood of Jesus covers our sins. For we pray in the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.